Oh, I forgot to mention, we have an Impact Kids meeting after church today. And as you can tell, we have some kids up there, okay? Um, we average between uh, 30 and 50 kids every Sunday. So if you are a person that's looking for a place to serve, um, we would love for you to serve in the kids area, okay? Only if you like kids, though. We're not going to let anyone up there serve in the kids. My kids are up there. If you don't like kids, please don't. We're going to tell you you're not allowed to serve up there, okay? Anyways, but that's directly after church today, too, if you're interested in that. But if you are on the kids team, make sure you stick around for that as well. Um, my brother, who's two years younger than me, he is also a pastor, so we both have the same job. If you've, My brother's been here. He comes here every October. We do a joint series together. He planted a church in Columbia, and um, if you've ever seen us, um, you would probably think we're twins initially because we look exactly the same. We dress kind of the same. We do our hair the same, and we have the same job. We don't make it easy for anybody, but we're not twins. I'm two years older, um, and I'm better looking. So that's my brother. But what's nice about my brother also being a pastor and a church planner is um, um, I can talk to him about stuff that's happening with work, and he can fully relate because he completely understands what we're going through because he is also a pastor and a church planner. So a lot of times I will talk to him um, if there's things happening here or I need advice on anything. I talk to him a lot of times. My brother is very different than I am, even though we look like twins. Um, he is more personable than I am. I am personable. But my brother, and I'm an extrovert too, so I love being around people. My brother is like the goofy, loving, he'll always give you a hug type personable person. I'm the sarcastic, like that's how I am. So my love language is sarcasm. So um, some people get mad at me because I just, I feel bad. Like there's some people that the more I like you, the more I make fun of you, which shouldn't be right, but that's what I do. So get over it. Anyways, I'm a little more strategic than my brother is. So together, our joke is together, we all, we can make one complete pastor if we were to join forces. But that's what we do. But many years ago, it was one of the first Sundays we were in this building, because we, we were um, meeting at a school prior to this. One of the very first Sundays, I had a very long weekend, and so I came in kind of tired, and the, the worship team and the tech team, we set up, we get here between 7.30 and 8, start setting up. Um, they can kind of tell when I'm a little grumpy and I've kind of had a long day, so um, I tend to be a little passive-aggressive at times. Um, I tend to uh, not talk that much until eventually Frank says, hey, you're stressing everybody out. Go look at your sermon somewhere, but get away from all of us, please. So that's when it really happens. This Sunday was one of those days where I was kind of tired. I was fairly negative. Service was fairly normal, um, except the third song we did, right in the back, uh, we were actually doing Oceans, in case any of you knows that song, the last time we've done it, and here's why. Ba in the back, upstairs, the bathroom flooded, and it was pouring through the ceiling. And we were playing the song Oceans. It was very ironic. I remember sitting up here, and um, the, uh, the sound guy came up and was tapping me on the shoulder. I was like, what? He's like, uh, turn around. And it was just flooding. Um, and luckily, it didn't hit anybody, but I was like, oh, no. We had just moved in, so I was worried they were going to kick us out. And I was like, where are we going to go if they kick us out? Because it's flooding there. Um, it, was, it was rough. Attendance was fine that day. At that time, we were averaging about 70 people, including kids, upstairs. And that day was about 55, 60 people. It was, it was a lighter attendance for sure. Not terrible. It wasn't great either. After service, someone came up to me, and they had a family emergency that they wanted to talk to me about, so I sat with them for a while and talked about the emergency they were going through. Um, cleanup, for some reason, took longer. Normally, we're done around 12.15. For some reason, it was like 12.45. We were finally finishing, cleaning everything up, so I was kind of tired. I went home, and uh, I got a call from somebody who um, was complaining to me because their kid got into a fight with another kid in kids' ministry, and somehow that was my fault, so they had to let me know. So they complained to me about that, and then I hung up, and then another person called me to complain about something I said in the sermon, all in one day. 
So then that night, I went to my brother's house, and we were watching football, and, and I was talking about Sunday, and I told him everything that happened, and I, and I remember I said, man, it was the worst Sunday I've ever had in my life. And here's his response. I remember it like it was yesterday. Here's how he responded. He said, that's the worst? Then you're pretty lucky. If that's the worst, like you got two complaints, and you figured out the, the, the ceiling, did, did, it, did it rain down on the soundboard? No, it didn't touch anyone's. Okay, that was the worst Sunday you've ever had? That sounds pretty lucky to me. And it made me think about my mindset. Because I walked in, ready for it to be a bad Sunday, and it was a bad Sunday. I walked in negative, not feeling, not feeling like doing it, feeling tired, and all of a sudden everything came my way. I was like, it's the worst I've ever had. Our mind is a battlefield. This entire series, we've been talking about how we have a war going on in our mind between thoughts of faith and thoughts of fear. We've been using the book Winning the War in Your Mind by Craig Rochelle. If you want to know more about what we're talking about, I highly recommend everything I'm talking about today is from that book and that sermon series that, that they made. Uh, um, and here's what we've been talking about. Here's our, been our verse. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This has been our, our verse for the entire series. Here's what Paul says. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. That word strongholds, we kept defining that as, as a prisoner that we make in our mind. The lies that we tell ourselves in our mind that some of us continually believe, whether it's just because of what we believe it or the enemy's feeding it to us, that make us a prisoner to our mind. We demolish those strongholds. How do we do that? Here's how we do it in verse 5. We demolish arguments of every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Here's what we've been learning all series long. It's been our series bottom line. We've said it every, every week. We've been learning this. Our lives always move in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Your lives always move in the direction of your strongest thoughts. And since our lives always move in that direction, whatever your strongest thought is, that's the direction that our lives move. If we aren't happy with the way we are going in life, the direction we are going in life, then we first have to change our thinking. We first have to change our thoughts. A couple weeks ago, we talked about um, neuropathways, and here's what we said about that. Our brain likes to be as efficient as possible. It's what it likes to do. So if you think a certain thing enough, your brain will go, oh, he likes to or she likes to think this, so I'm going to make it as easy as possible for them to think this. So if you think negative thoughts constantly, your brain will rewire itself literally so that you think negative thoughts easier. And it works the other way. If you think positive thoughts continually and constantly, your brain will rewire itself so you continually and easier and easily think positive thoughts. It's like walking on the same spot of grass, you will eventually see a path form. That's what happens to all of our minds. That's called neuropathways. And because of neuropathways, all of us have what we call a cognitive bias. Cognitive bias. If you don't know what a cognitive bias is, this is what a cognitive bias is. It is a mistake in reasoning based on, on personal experiences or preferences. It's a mistake in how you reason based on what happened to you, on your personal experiences, your personal preferences. And there are so many different types of cognitive biases. Let me give you some examples of this. There's confirmation bias. Maybe for you, you look for or you overvalue information because it confirms your beliefs or your expectations. Let's, let's think of an um, example would be if a police officer thinks somebody is lying they might go in, and that person might act strange because the police officer are intimidated. But because they think they're lying, everything they do, they'll say, see, that person's lying because I have confirmation bias. That can happen to all of us. That's a cognitive bias. There's a gambler fallacy. Something will happen 
because it hasn't happened yet. That's what it means. So you're at the roulette table, and it keeps going on red. One, two, three, four times in a row it's on red. So you think, well, it's got to be black next because it's been red every time, so it has to be black next. And really, it's 50-50 every single time. When I had um, the, my, I have three kids, my first two kids were girls, and I remember really, really, really wanting a boy. That's what I really wanted. And a lot of people told me, like, hey, it's very unlikely that you would have three girls in a row. And I would say, yeah, that's true, but once you have two of them, it's the same odds every time. It's 50-50 that I'm going to have. And I eventually had a boy, and I screamed in the sonogram room. I was like, yes, had a boy. There's gender bias. That's another cognitive bias. We assign specific behaviors and characteristics to our particular gender without any evidence. That person's a female, so this per that female has to be this way, and that person's a male, so that male has to be this way. It's, it's gender bias. Here's the last one I'll talk about. Group attribution error. Here's what that is. We overgeneralize how a group of people behave based on an interaction with one person from the group. So I don't know what you are politically. Let's say um, you've met a Republican and you're not Republican, or you met a Democrat and you're not Democrat. And that one Republican or that one Democrat, um, they act a certain way to you, so now you think all Republicans act that way or all Democrats act that way because of your interaction with the one. That is group attribution error. All of these are cognitive biases. And a cognitive bias is really two things. If you have your notes, you can write these down. Two things that a cognitive bias is. Number one, it's a filter. It's a filter. If you have Instagram or, or Snapchat, you know what a filter is. A filter changes the way that you see the image. If you change the filter, you change the feel of the image. And um, a year ago, Instagram made this filter that was making its rounds that was pretty interesting. It's called filter versus reality. Here's actually a picture of what the filter would look like. Um, filter versus reality. So what it would do is it would take half of the picture and it would put a filter on it, make it look, um, you can see here, bigger lips, uh, brighter, higher, uh, higher eyes, smooth skin, and the other half would stay exactly the same. This is what the girl really looks like, but the filter would show you what half of the picture looks like. And it was a way to show people that if you put a certain filters on, you can make it look however you want, and that's not reality. It's just a filter that's put on it. Because of cognitive bias, all of us have mental filters. You didn't do anything. To, it's, it's, all of us have it. It's not just, just any specific people. We all have mental filters. And those mental filters is how we see everything now. And you didn't make it. Most likely it was from the way you were brought up. It was some experiences that you had. But we all have mental filters. Here's what it might look like for you. Um, you think all the men in your life are bad because all the men that were in your life were bad. And whenever you're around men, they either weren't there or they weren't trustworthy. So now you have trouble trusting men because you have a filter. That's your filter. Maybe for you, you had terrible church experiences when you were kids. So now you don't really trust church people anymore. Why? You have a filter. For me, um, my, my dad taught me from a very early age that we hate the Washington former Redskins. That's what he taught me. Very early age, I know. Say some, hey, I feel bad. I talked to some of you guys that are here. You're here. Everyone's welcome, even losers. Okay, so you're welcome. I'm saying that as a Ravens fan who just, anyways, who's about to lose the best quarterback in the league. Anyways, so to this day, I've had, uh, I've, I talked to Tim over there, and he, was, and he asked me once, like, why do you not like the Washington Commanders now? And I was like, I, my dad wouldn't give me an option. I had to not like them, so now my filter is I hate them, and I always root against them. They've never done anything wrong to me, but yet I do. And I don't want my dad to disown me, so I have to do that. All of us have filters. All of us do. What we need to do first is admit it. We need to admit that we all have filters. That's key number one. Admit that you see things through a filter that clouds our view, that makes it seem like it's true to you, 
but it's not fully true. You're doing the best you can, just like I'm doing the best I can. This is how I see it, but it's not the full truth, even if you feel like it's true. You're seeing it through your filter. That's number one. Number two, you need to realize that our filter can be incorrect, that our filter can be wrong. And if it is incorrect, we need to change our filter. That's what we need to do. Because of mental filters, it is why two people can experience the same exact thing, but yet think completely differently. Your, your boss can give two people the same exact feedback on their job. One can be offended by it. One can be like, oh, I love that feedback. It'll make me grow. Same exact feedback, but because your filters, you might see it differently. That's why one person can come to a church and sit there and be like, why are they raising their hands? Why, are they, why is the music so loud? Why, why are all the kids destroying upstairs, I assume? Like, why is that happening and not get anything out of it while the person right next to him can be like, I can feel the presence of God in this room and I'm, I'm connecting to God. I'm, I'm enjoying worshiping. I love that the kids are, that there's so many kids up there. You can have the same exact experience but because you're filters, you're going to see it differently. I took Erica to go see a band once. Uh, it's a band called Me Without You that you do not know. You do not need to look it up. You'll probably hate it. But it's my favorite band of all time. We were kind of dating at the time. Um, we were dating or, or newly married and I made her come. And to me, it was one of the best shows I've ever been to because it's my favorite band. And she sat there the whole time being like, when can this show end? It's the worst experience of my life. That's what happened. Same exact experience, different filters. In the book of Numbers, Moses sends 12 spies to explore the land to see if they can take over the land. And they, they come back, and the reports they give, all 12 spies go to the same place. They come back, and the reports they give are completely different. Here's what it says in Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. It says, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Caleb, along with another spy, went in and said, yeah, I see what's happening. I see what the land looks like. I see the enemies. We can take it. We can go in. We can take over. It's not a, not a big deal. But the other 10 saw something different. Here's what it says in verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. They all saw the same exact thing. Two of them said it's possible. Ten said it wasn't. Their filters were different. A cognitive bias is a filter that we see everything through. But it's not just a filter, number one. It's also this, number two, a frame. You see, we never actually get the full picture of what we're looking at. We only have a frame of it. We just aren't capable to see the full picture. It's not possible for any of us to fully see the full picture. You have your filters and you have your frame. To you, it's going to be true, but it's not the full truth. Here's what it's like. Let's put this picture up here, a picture of a storm. This is the full picture, okay? We don't see the full picture of anything when it comes to any aspect of your life. Here's what we all do. All of us do this. We take our limited frame and we put it in a certain spot. If you were to frame just this section, you would say, yeah, it's a very dark storm. This is terrible. There's nothing good that can come out of this. This is your filter. And you're not wrong. This is your frame. This is the only thing you can see. You can't see the rest of it. All you can see is this. Or if you were to put the frame here, you'd be like, oh, it's a great day. It's beautiful out. It's perfectly fine. And you're not wrong either because this is the frame you have. You don't see the full picture. All you see is that. All of us, ha this happens to everyone. In any situation, we all frame things differently. And here, whenever you realize that you frame something and you can frame it negatively or you can frame it positively, what that means is you can always reframe it. So because this is the full picture and you don't have the full picture, you can always choose to reframe it, creating a different way of looking at a situation and looking at a relationship 
and change its meaning because you used to look at that situation like this. It's all negative. It's all terrible. That person's the worst. That person hates me. That person will never get better. God did something to me. Where is God in this? Or you let it this way. You know what? I believe the best in that person. You know God has a plan for me no matter what. You can reframe it. You cannot control what happens to you. But you can control how you frame it. You can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you frame it. So if you go in with your frame and you decide today's going to be a bad day, it will be a bad day. You already framed it. You already decided it's going to be a bad day, so it's a bad day. That Sunday I came in when it, the water went everywhere, I decided before I came in it was going to be a bad day. But if you go in and say, you know what, today's going to be a good day. No matter what happens, most likely it'll be a pretty good day. Bad things could happen that day, but because you framed it correctly, say, you know what, it's a pretty good day. When you look at your relationship with God, you can, you can frame it and go, God, why would you do this to me? God, why would you allow this to happen to me? You can blame God for what you do. You already framed it. Or you can say, you know what, God, I know you use all things for good, no matter what is happening, even though I don't like what's happening, but I'm going to choose to frame it and trust you in this anyway. You can't control what happens to you. You can control how you frame it. Things are going to happen. You necessarily can't control it. And my guess is, if you thought long enough, all of us could think of things that we expected were going to happen by now that actually haven't happened. Like you expected at some point, at this point in your life as an adult, as a college student, as, a, as an older adult, that, that things would be different than they are right now. Maybe for you, you thought you'd have that career job by now. You don't. Maybe for you, you have that career job and you thought you'd like it a lot more and you find yourself not really enjoying it. Maybe you thought you'd be married by now or you thought you'd have a child by now or you thought you'd have more than one child by now. Maybe you thought you would have more money than you do right now. When you were a kid, you're like, yeah, I'm going to be completely well off and now here you are getting oil bills that are insanely expensive and you're like, I don't know how to afford this. Maybe for you, you thought you'd be happier than you are. You have everything you wanted. You have the family, you have the job, you have the money, but yet you're not happy. You thought it would be different than now. And my guess is, if we all thought long enough, we'd all be able to think of something that we thought would be different. And most likely, it is stuff that is out of your control, things that you do not understand. If there's anyone that can understand this in Scripture, it's Paul. Paul writes this, book, this letter to, it's in the book of Philippians. He writes this letter to close, his close friends in the church of Philippi. And if you read the book of Acts, at the end of Acts, Acts chapter 28, um, it says that Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's under house arrest. For two whole years, Paul is being watched constantly. He's actually chained to different guards so that he can't go anywhere. He's in house arrest. See, Paul's dream was to preach in Rome. When, when, before Jesus ascended, he gave the, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And, and his disciples were doing a really good job when it came to the Jewish people, the people that kind of had a history of the Israelites. But they weren't doing that great of a job for the Gentiles, the ones that did not have that history. Paul said, I'm going to do something about that. And his dream was to go to Rome, where a lot of Gentiles were, and preach the word of Jesus. It's a good dream. It's a godly dream. It was a godly calling. And he went, and he started preaching, then he gets arrested. For two years, he is stuck in house arrest when his dream was to preach the message of God. A, a God-given calling, that was his dream. But yet here he is in a prison for two years, chained to someone else. He's not preaching it. He can't go and preach in the public square. He's stuck there. So here, look what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. He says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me really sucks. As a result of the hell I've been through, I'm quitting my small group. I'm never going back to church. 
Some of you are thinking, I should really read the Bible more. That's in there? <laughs> no, that's not what he said. He didn't say that. But you know what? If I wrote it, that might have been what I wrote. If you wrote it, maybe that's what you would have written. Like, Because he certainly could have. If For some of us, we would have written that. He had a God-given dream, and yet he's thrown in a prison. That doesn't make any sense to the God-given dream, a good dream, a good calling to preach the message of Jesus to all these people. He's thrown into a prison. I understand why he'd be upset. Why would God allow it to happen? And for some of us, we would write something like this. We would think, why would God allow us to have such a desire to be a parent, and yet here we are still not a parent? Why would God do that? Why would God give me skills in my work that I know can help my work, but when I use those skills, my boss yells at me or they fire me? Why would that happen? Why would God lead me to a person that I eventually fall in love with and marry for it to be the hardest marriage or end in divorce? Why would God do that? Paul certainly, in my eyes at least, has a right to write this. So he's preaching to Rome, and yet here he is stuck in a prison. And in the midst of his house arrest, and in the midst of not doing the dream that he felt like God called him to do, here's what Paul actually writes in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul, you're in prison. You understand that, right? How is you being in prison advancing the gospel? How is this terrible circumstance that you should not be in, how, are you, how is this serving a purpose? Paul, you've also been in prison before. Like, if you read the book of Acts, Acts 16, Paul was in prison, and they're worshiping, and the ground shook, because, and the gates opened. But yet, that's not happening here. You're stuck in this prison. What? Do you see where you are? Paul, you remember when God showed up back then? Why isn't he showing up now? But yet, Paul says, I'm here to serve a purpose. Verse 13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. You see, Paul is there, and, and he's constantly chained to another guard, and then eventually that guard would take off, and another one would come. And so when Paul sees that, he doesn't see it as the guard is chained, that he's chained to this guard. He sees that guard is chained to him. So eight hours a day, there's somebody that can't leave that's going to hear about the gospel. And then what's going to happen is that guy's going to leave, and a new one's going to come. And eight hours a day, I'm going to preach to that person about the gospel. They are chained to me. They're going to hear about the gospel over and over and over. What is Paul doing? He's reframing the situation. Between on verse 14, the last verse we'll look at. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul certainly could have doubted. He certainly could have whined about his situation because it was a terrible situation he's in. But instead, Paul saw it as an opportunity. And because Paul saw this terrible circumstance as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, even though it's not what he wanted. Because he did that, amazing things happen. While he's in prison, he keeps writing these letters to these other churches that he helped plant, and he writes these letters and to the leaders, and eventually those letters make it to our Bibles, and they become Philippians, they become Ephesians, and they become Colossians. He wrote that while he's in this prison. Some of those guards that he's chained to, they actually start following this movement. They're stuck with him. They're starting to be like, oh, that actually kind of makes sense. And all the followers of this, it was called the, the movement of the way at that point. It wasn't Christianity. That's how it's called the way. This, this message of Jesus' gospel. All the followers of that message saw Paul, saw the courage and the boldness. So they took the message, and they kept being bold with it. 
And when they went to Rome and Rome said, you better stop or we're going to kill you, they said, then kill us, we're not going to stop. And because of their boldness, the message eventually became something that Rome embraced. It spread throughout the world. And we're here because of that boldness. And even Paul says, because of the confidence I'm showing in my terrible situation, everyone else now has more boldness. Reframing the situation. Exactly what he is doing. So what does that mean for us? Whatever situation you're in, whatever mindset we currently fight, here's what it means. Reframe your story and your relationships. You can choose that. You can always choose to reframe it. I find, at least for me, that it's so easy for me to take life for granted. And most of life is decent. Most of life for all of us is good. When the bad things happen, these bad things are pretty uncommon. I mean, think about it. If we do not frame our story and our relationship correctly, it can completely destroy our mindset so that the small bad things that happen that are not the norm, they're the minority in our life, when those things happen, it can destroy our mindset, it can destroy our outlook on life, it can destroy everything. When most of life is good, it's just nothing's happening, so we don't even notice it. Craig Rochelle, in his book, talks about three things, teaches us three things when it comes to reframing. I'll do these very quickly. Number one, we want to reframe our life. We want to reframe our story and reframe our relationship. Number one, we have to thank God for what didn't happen. Most of life is uneventful. You wake up, you go to work, nothing special happens. You come home, maybe you take your kids to a practice, you eat dinner, you put the kids to bed, you watch a show, you go to bed, you do the next thing the next day. Most of life, it's uneventful. Normal days, nothing necessarily happens. But you understand, when you have a day that nothing happens, do you realize what didn't happen that day? You didn't lose your job that day. You didn't get into a car accident. Your house wasn't broken into. Your kids made it home safely. You're completely healthy. Your kids are healthy. No one's sick. You didn't get a bad call from a doctor. Your, your loved ones are still good. You got a paycheck again. Your house didn't burn down. You didn't run out of food and you didn't starve. All these things on a normal nothing day. What happened? Nothing. That's what happened that day. All these things that could have happened, it didn't. Do we ever thank God for the nothing days? I know I struggle to do that. And even if something bad happens that day, there are still things to thank God about that didn't happen. Maybe at work you didn't get that bonus. But you know what? You didn't lose your job either. So I have something to be thankful for. Maybe you did get into a car accident that day. But you're fine. The car's destroyed. It's going to be a pain in the butt to figure that out. But you're fine. Something still didn't happen. Thank God for what didn't happen, number one. Number two, practice pre-framing. Practice pre-framing. Decide before you go into this situation, how you're going to handle it, how you're going to frame it. What, when it before you even enter the situation, before you enter that relationship, you decide how you are going to frame it. You decide. It's your decision. It's your decision to have. You can choose to pre-frame the situation in a positive way, or you can choose to pre-frame it in a negative way. It's your choice. Maybe for you, you have to go to the in-laws for dinner, and you hate going to the in-laws for dinner, and you know they're going to bring up that political topic that you don't want to talk about, it's going to cause a fight, that they're going to say certain things. And so in your head, you're like, oh, we have to go. And you already know that it's going to be terrible. And you show up, and guess what? It's terrible. You know why it's terrible? You decided before you showed up, it's going to be terrible. What if instead you say, you know what? I'm going to go in with a positive attitude. I'm going to go in hoping things are going to work out for the best. And you pre-frame it differently. Maybe you have a meeting you have to go to and work, and your mindset is, this meeting is going to be terrible. It's a waste of my time. It's not going to be good. And, and so you pre-frame it. 
what if instead you say, you know what, it's at least, even if a lot of this stuff is not for me, it's at least a way for me to connect with my, my coworkers and I have a job, it's great. What if you preframe it that way? Um, I know I used to work, before I was a um, full-time pastor, I worked at an organization called CSAC, worked with individuals with, with autism. I was the billing manager there. And um, I would work very closely with the, the younger kids, the IEI program. Ages two to about eight is what I would work at. And I would send stuff to the county. I would um, send stuff to insurances. Really fun, exciting job. And um, I remember once a month, I would have to meet with the IEI team. And when I would show up, the meeting to me should have only lasted 15 minutes. 20 minutes, 30 minutes at most. My part was five minutes, but 30 minutes at most. Those meetings would last hours, hours. So I would go in so grumpy, so mad, because I know we're going to talk about other stuff. The people are going to kind of walk in a little late. It's like we're going to be getting on tangents. It's like I got work to do, even though that job, I got paid 40 hours a week, and it was really a 25-hour-a-week job, so I had a lot of free time. But um, I don't want my boss to know that because then they make me 25. So I would go in and be like, this is a waste of time. And eventually, um, one of the managers asked to meet with me, and they said, hey, what do you think of these meetings? Do you think they're good? Do you think not? And I let him know, like, they're a waste of time. They waste my time. I, I hate them. They're terrible. And she said, yeah, I know that you think that because you make everyone in the room feel uncomfortable by the way you act. They don't know how to talk to you. They feel weird about you because they know you hate the meeting before you even walk into the meeting. It's like, oh, maybe these meetings were so terrible because I'm the one who made it terrible. I pre-framed it. Number one, thank God for what didn't happen. Number two, pre-frame it. And the last one, number three, look for God's goodness. I found that you always will find what you're looking for. You always will. If you look for the bad in any relationship, in any person, in any situation, you're going to find it. You can find it. But if you look for the good in every relationship, in every person, in, in, in every situation you're in, you'll also find that. To me, you have two options. Two different people you can be. You can be a vulture, or you can be a hummingbird. Here's the difference. What do vultures look for? Dead things. What do vultures find? Dead things. Hummingbird, what does a hummingbird look for? It looks for sweet things. What does a hummingbird find? Sweet things. That's what they're looking for. Some of you are vultures. You're always looking for the dead. You're always looking for the worst. You're always looking for what happened that was wrong. You always look for what's incorrect. You always find the worst in people, and you'll find it. You always find it. You always find ways to make this day a bad day. You're a vulture. You're looking for dead things. You're going to find dead things. Or you could be a hummingbird. That you can find hope in any hopeless situation. You can believe the best in people instead of believing the worst. You can see every day, every day, as an opportunity for you. You can be a vulture. You can be a hummingbird. Those are your options. When I think of 2020, I don't know how it was for you guys, but um, we all went through the same thing in 2020. Um, and 2020, when I think back at 2020, was the worst year of my life, for sure. And here's what I think about, and I'll give you a little bit of history of, of 2020. Beginning of 2020, January, my brother I talked about earlier, he called me in the middle of the night because his son was being rushed to the hospital. Um, they didn't know what was wrong with him. He, he was having trouble breathing. They had to go put a breathing tube down his throat, and it got stuck. They're rushing him to the hospital. Terrible. So it's four in the morning. It's like, we need to pray because we don't know what's going to happen. He might not make it. That's how my 2020 started. Pretty rough, right? Then um, in 2020, 
this COVID thing started happening. And I remember, just like probably most of you, I was like, this is going to be, this is going to be done. It'll be, we'll move right past it. It'll be a big deal. But it didn't. It changed everything. And for me, COVID really put me in a funk because I'm a person that likes to be, I need to be around people. I'm an extrovert. I don't want to be stuck at home. I love my family more than anyone. But the best thing for my family sometimes is for me not to be around my family, to have some guy time, you know what I'm saying? Like, don't judge me. You guys are all the same way. But we're stuck in the house. We can't leave. We can't see anybody. And we did Zoom parties. Remember those? Those sucked. Zoom parties were terrible. Remember those? That's what I would do. But I would, it would put me in a funk. I would just not, never happy. It was just bad. And during COVID, COVID canceled some important things for me. My best friend, I was the, I was the um, best man um, for my best friend. He got married over Zoom. I couldn't even be. It was in April. I couldn't even be there. We did, a, we did our bachelor party over Zoom. That was weird. But there's no other option. It was around April. We, had, we were stuck in, inside. Um, I remember uh, Easter time, uh, my, my parents and my in-laws came over, and they had to stay outside while we ate dinner. Remember that? And when we go outside, they're like, hey, we got to spread out. We're not sure we're going to do the eggs because we don't want to. But we didn't know. Remember when you were washing the dishes and, or the, the groceries because you didn't know how COVID worked? That's where it's happening. Over time, we would have friends that would come over. We'd always hang outside by the fire, and my kids would come out and want to hug the, my friends. Friends would be like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't really touch you. And, like, it was so awkward and weird, and it, it happened for all of us. Um, during that time, we sold our house, and we were so worried about all these strangers walking into our house they're bringing their COVID cooties in, right? We didn't know how it worked. We were so worried about it. Like, it was, it was hard. Um, and then we eventually bought a house around here, and my daughter had to start her brand new school where she didn't know anyone over Zoom or over, over the computer. And it felt so bad for her because she wanted to meet friends. She couldn't meet any friends. And I'm not even talking about church when it comes to this. Church-wise, hardest year ever. We didn't meet in person for months and my wife and I would actually argue every Sunday about how we did it. I was very passionate about it. I wanted to do it live. So we would come here and myself and a very small team would do it live. My wife was like, no, you can't be going places. You can't do that. Every Sunday we would have a heated debate argument about it. Until eventually we had a stay-at-home order, so we decided to stay home. That's the only way the argument stopped. Every Sunday we argued about it. It was affecting our marriage. Around COVID time, we had about 70 people, including the kids, small church, and out of those 70 people, only 60% came back when we reopened. Other people just never came back. We never saw them again. And at church, we couldn't do anything right. We announced when we would return, and people were mad because it was too early. For the, for when we announced we were going to return, we had social distancing things. We cleaned chairs, that kind of stuff. People were mad at the structure that we made. Like, why do we have to do this? When we announced we're not wearing masks anymore, people were mad. This is too quick. When we announced that people had to wear masks at one point, people were like, why do I got to wear a mask? No matter what, it was wrong. There's nothing we could have done about it. And I'm not even talking about the political climate at the time. I would watch online, on Facebook, people at this church that one would be Republican, one would be Democrat. And when we had an opportunity as a church to show the world how we love each other when we disagree, we went online and did the complete opposite. I watched our church do it. And then if I said something that alluded to any side, I got complaints. No matter what we did in 2020, it was wrong. And I think about 2020 as a church, my job, my kids, my family, my health, all I can think about is how terrible it was. It was the worst year of my life. Or was it? See, this week I looked back at all these pictures of our family, and I started to think about all the things that happened in 2020. My, um, my, my nephew, Russell, he had what was called tracheal rings. And here's what tracheal rings are. 
your throat, everyone's throat is like this, and it has like a flexible spot, so when you get sick, it will expand when you get mucus. Russell didn't have that. He, his, his were like this. They were actual rings. So they wouldn't expand. So when he got sick and the mucus came, he, he couldn't breathe. This is kind of rare, but it's really only rare because most kids that have this die of SIDS. Because they, it, two months, they get sick, and all of a sudden they can't breathe, right? Russell was eight months the first time he got sick. You've had kids. That's impossible that it, it takes eight months for a kid to get sick, right? And my brother was luckily awake when it happened, and they luckily got the tube down far enough that even though it didn't go enough, it went down far enough. He got surgery. It's completely fine. He's got a scar he's going to pick up chicks with for the rest of his life. It's great. That's what happened to Russell. When, when COVID happened, we were a church of 70 people. We were tired. We didn't have enough people to set up consistently to do all the kids' teams. So a lot of the leaders had to pick up a lot of slack. And all of a sudden, this COVID thing happened. I remember Frank and I would text him. I'd be like, it's kind of nice having a little bit of a break. <laughs> don't have to set up right now. We don't have to tear down. Like, we can just kind of do it from our house. It's kind of a, we were kind of getting burned out. It was kind of a nice break that we, that we didn't even know we needed. I got to spend time with my family. My wife got to work from home. It was great for me because I would bug her all day. She probably hated it, but I loved it because she was there. I need to talk to people at work, and I'm stuck in my house by myself all the time. I actually had people I could interact with. Our family, we did all this fun stuff together that, that we had deep relationships that we didn't have. Our friendships, you know, we couldn't meet. Once we were finally able to hang out, it's like we realized what we missed, and it, and it brought a new friendship from my close group of friends that's like, we didn't see each other for so long and now we are seeing each other again. We realize what we missed and now look at what we have going now. Church, like I said, 70 people, but only 60% returned. Here's what else happened. All these new people started showing up that I didn't know. Some of these new people became staff. Lindsay became our connections director. Ashley upstairs became our kids director. We didn't know they existed. They came after COVID. So even though a lot of people left, we grew when COVID, after COVID happened started to grow. We started doing these ministries that we never planned on doing. Right when it first started, I remember I was on a, a Zoom meeting trying to figure out with the rest of the community what to do, and there's another pastor another church that wanted to do a food pantry. We didn't know how to do a food pantry, so we, I called them and said, hey, can we do a food pantry with you? We started a food pantry that we plan on only doing about once or twice, right, Don? And we're still doing it two years later. We, um, we met Lisa, who uh, does ministries at the treatment center right down the street. You know how she started that? She just showed up and said, can we do it? She started doing all these ministries to people that are in recovery. And all of a sudden, now, once a week, they are over there. Once a month, we do a service there. We bring that baptistry over there. We baptized just this year over 20 people at that treatment center. Ministries that we had never done before started because of COVID. You can't control what happens to you. You can control how you frame it. If you look hard enough, you will find the goodness of God in every situation. You have to choose to look for it. You're going to find what you're looking for. I just encourage you to look for something that's going to bring you life and purpose and not look for dead things. I encourage you to be a hummingbird, not a vulture. Let's pray. Dear God, today we just come humbly before you and thank you for all the blessings that we have in our lives. All the things that we take for granted, all the things that we don't even notice. All the ways that you've been good to us. And dear God, I pray that you help us that when bad situations happen, 
that we use it as an opportunity to, to grow closer to you, to glorify you, to connect closer with you, to find your goodness in every situation. God, help us to not be people that look for the negative, that look for the, the bad things in life, but are able to take any situation and find your love and your grace and your hope in it because we know it's in every situation. And help us to have the right filters, have the right frame. In your son's name, amen. Let's sing this song together. Let's stand and sing.